Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides. Welcome to Season 4 of Latinx Visions. This season, we will be focusing on Latinx New York City. New York City has a significant Latinx population with over 2.2 million people identifying as Hispanic or Latino in the city as of 2020. This diverse group is made up of migrants, immigrants, and descendants from a variety of countries, including the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Mexico, and Ecuador, to name just the biggest groups in terms of population. The Latinx community in New York City is concentrated in boroughs like the Bronx and in neighborhoods such as Washington Heights, El Barrio, or East Harlem, and Los Sures, or South Williamsburg. These neighborhoods often have a strong sense of community and cultural and linguistics identity, with visible Latinx-oriented street life and many businesses and restaurants that appeal to the community. The Latinx community in New York City also has a significant impact on the city's economy, culture, and politics. Additionally, there are many Latinx-led community organizations, cultural centers, and festivals that celebrate and promote Latinx culture in the city all year round. We'll bring you at least four episodes related to television and film, literature, theater, and the community. We also hope to have a bonus interview episode in addition to the student specials with a release date to be determined. In this episode, we will consider how New York and Latinidad intersect and engage with one another by considering themes such as socioeconomic classes, gender identity and expression, pan-Latinidad, race constructions, cultural identity conflicts, and feelings of in-betweenness. In today's episode, where we're focusing on television and film, I'm going to be looking at the ABC television series that ran from 2006 to 2010, Ugly Betty. Ugly Betty is an American dramedy that was based on the Colombian telenovela Yo Soy Betty La Fea, which aired from 1999 to 2001. There have been various spin-offs and adaptations of this extremely popular telenovela, but today we'll focus on the U.S. adaptation starring America Ferreira. In this version, our main character, Betty Suarez, lands a job at the prestigious fashion magazine Mode. She's been hired as the assistant to Daniel Mead, the newly appointed editor-in-chief, by Daniel's father because she's not seen as someone that Daniel would sleep with. Classic telenovela tropes. <laughs> there are so many problematic things about this show, and I will say, like, after watching the first season in preparation for this podcast episode, there are many aspects that did not age well at all. But it's still a show that played an important role in Latinx representation on television in the 21st century, and that's why I wanted to cover it. The show takes place in New York City with Betty's family being from Jackson Heights, Queens, and her job being on Madison Avenue in Manhattan. While the majority of the first two seasons were filmed in Los Angeles, the pilot episode, a handful of outdoor scenes from these first two seasons, and the third and fourth seasons were all filmed in New York. In my section, I'll discuss adapting telenovelas and performing pan Latinidad, including cultural ambiguity and assimilation, and the concept of the American dream. 
On my part, I will be analyzing the film Racing Victor Vargas from 2002, a Latinx coming-of-age comedy film directed by Peter Solid and co-written by him with the aid of at-the-time non-professional actors and the movie co-producer Eva Vives. The film is built around a series of structured improvisations. They tell the story of Victor Vargas, a teenage boy living in Loisaida, or the Lower East Side of Manhattan, who struggles to navigate the complexities of adolescent gender norms and relationship while also dealing with the expectation of his traditional Dominican culture embodied by his abuela. Racing Victor Vargas is ultimately a film about the abyss between reputation and experience, self-awareness, cis-heterosexual gender performance, and teenage lust. Victor fancies himself a ladies' man, but his macho tactics amount to little. Similarly, Victor's grandma has difficulty accepting her grandchildren's puberty and life changes. Victor and his families must deal with other ways to understand intimacy. The film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and received positive reviews from critics and is now considered a classic of Latinx cinema. In my section, I will focus on how the film and the main characters navigate the complexities of masculinity. I will see how the film explores the pressure that Pictor feels to conform to traditional gender roles within the Caribbean culture of Loisaida, where being a so-called real man of the street is highly valued. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so we'll get started talking about adapting telenovelas, right? There's a long history of adapting telenovelas that were created in one place and reworked for another market. In the U.S., we've had soap operas going back to the radio days. Uh, I know there was one that my grandmother watched her whole life that she listened to on the radio when she was young. But these aren't really the same as telenovelas, right? And U.S. telenovela adaptations in English really didn't gain popularity until the late 20th century. Today we'll be discussing Ugly Betty, as I mentioned, but other popular adaptations you might have heard of include Jane the Virgin, Devious Maids, and Queen of the South, but there are plenty other examples out there. So why adapt telenovelas? They're often seen as a means of creating crossover content between cultures and generations. One of the central arguments is to appeal to second-generation audiences that move between Spanish and English language media. Studies found that there was a lot of overlap between second-generation Latina audiences and white audiences, and this was one approach to bridging a cultural gap, as well as a generational gap between first-generation Spanish-language telenovela fans and second-generation bilingual audiences. Now, this can be beneficial in some ways, but it can also end up translating certain stereotypes and problematic tropes into contemporary programs. So, telenovelas are known for their use of stereotypical characters, right? These characters are hyper-exaggerated versions of different character types to add drama to the storyline. Ugly Betty made some moves to address certain stereotypes, but primarily I think it played into them. One, for example, Betty is ugly. I mean, it's in the title, right? (laughs) But how so? Well, of course, she wears braces and glasses and has an odd fashion sense and her hair is not smooth. So clearly that equals being ugly. (laughs) I mean, problematic trope number one. Check. Betty works for a fashion magazine, and there we have the inept white boss man, the devious black, albeit light-skinned woman who wants his job and will stop at nothing to get to it, 
the over-sexualized receptionist, the highly effeminate gay man, the Scottish woman who likes to drink. You get the point. Like, stereotypes, all of them. Betty's father and nephew in this show, though, they break from stereotypical, like, machista male roles, but her sister Hilda is coded as a stereotypical Latina character. She's labeled as Betty's slutty sister, who's had a child as a teenager, again, playing into these hyper-exaggerated tropes. But interestingly, as the author Isabel Molina Guzman tells us, by situating the Betty character as the oddball, reviewers define the show as more than a new take on Latina-Latino programming. So maybe Betty doesn't play into the stereotype of what a Latina is quote-unquote supposed to be, but everyone else around her does. So again, I struggled. I watched one season and I was like, I think I'm done. <laughs> I don't usually abandon shows Jesus like that. enough. <laughs> it, it, it is. And it's funny because I've spoken to people and they're like, oh, I love that show when it was on. And I'm like, yeah, I go back and watch a bit. And I think you might find it didn't it didn't age well. <laughs> yeah, both in Spanish and in English, the film, the, the show was really big. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in multiple adaptations, right? Like the Colombian one was the original, but then they had like a Mexican version. They had, um, I forget where else, but there was a whole bunch of places they adapted it. I always was surprised at how like seeing the, the obvious stereotypes, how like people like embrace th that kind of, of, of show, right? But yeah. <laughs> to each their own, right? <laughs> um, okay, so when we talk about problematic tropes, within the context of these stereotypical characters, we see them, these problematic tropes, right? Some of these things may have been considered important representations at the time the show aired. Again, remember 2006 to 2010, not that long ago, but apparently long enough ago. But as I said, looking back on them now, I think they're quite problematic. You know, like the devious power hungry woman who can't seem to make it to the top. So that's Wilhelmina and she's played by Vanessa Williams. And she's going to stop at nothing to get to the top. The problem is that she also targets the women around her instead of just focusing on taking down the unworthy men, the, the patriarchal system. Again, I mentioned that the hyper-exaggerated, super effeminate gay man, right? We have Mark. He's the assistant to Wilhelmina. And it's not to say there aren't men like him around, of course. Like, people like him do exist. But it feeds into the stereotype that gay men are catty. And, and they give us a trans character in the show, Alexis, who, you know, in true telenovela fashion comes back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> but she's played by Rebecca Romaine. So so we've moved past having cis men in drag play trans women. As we saw in I Like It Like That. Yeah, but now we're just casting cis women instead. Like, yikes. I know it was 2006, but like, that wasn't that long ago, right? Another problematic trope I saw was the Latina bad girl, right? You've got Betty's sister, Hilda. Her Latinidad is highlighted through her being bilingual and loving telenovelas. You got that meta yeah. <laughs> element. <laughs> Uh, she's also strong-willed, hot-headed, and visually curvy, right? She had a child when she was just out of high school. And this contrasts with Betty as the good girl, whose Latinidad is de-emphasized throughout the show. But I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. Again, these are just a couple examples of the problematic tropes that appeared um, not just in Ugly Betty, but from various telenovelas. And it's pretty cringe. <laughs> 
it, it will be interesting also to ask to what extent a telenovela will work without those stereotypes, right? Uh, because people are expecting them. So it's a matter of also the expectation of the audience, the market audience, yeah, and how uh, how that is negotiated. It's It's really interesting because my husband was watching some of these episodes with me, and I think he reacted much more strongly than I did because I had that like, well, it's a telenovela. It's supposed to be ridiculous mm -hmm. from the experience of having watched them. And I which... think people like are also expecting that ridiculousness, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, even like the people who are like really into telenovelas, also they know that those are the tropes. They recognize them. They enjoyed them. Uh, we can get into like uh, camp uh, aesthetics uh, within telenovelas, uh, although that's not the main focus today, but definitely that's part of it as yeah. well. Yeah, and I think, but I think one of the things with humor is when your target is a marginalized or oppressed person to begin with, that mm -hmm. that's where the issue lies. If the targets were the, like the cis white men, cis straight white men at the top, great, that would be really funny. But when they are the people of color, when they are um, the people who have been historically oppressed, then that's where it gets really icky. <laughs> and to what extent also like uh, audiences are like also uh, interested in challenging those tropes. Yeah, that's another question that we could ask there, right? That's... Like to what extent they accept them, but to what extent also they will, they desire to challenge them. Mm -hmm. And they desire like uh, telenovelas that can like challenge those tropes. Yeah. Right? And I think that's a big difference, like even within the last decade that we've seen mm -hmm. a lot of pushback against those types of things at least in mainstream U.S. media. And so even when you have like a telenovela like Jane the Virgin, which came a few years later, it still had some of those tropes, but it also de-emphasized other like hyper-exaggerated ones that I think were much more apparent in Ugly Betty. To our audience, yeah, or listeners <laughs> more so, right? If you're a telenovela watcher and you want to like comment on recent telenovelas and how that have changed or not, uh, please send us a message. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the next thing I want to discuss is Pan Latinidad. We discussed this a little bit in our episode on One Day at a Time back in season one. But we didn't dive too deeply into it. So uh, today I want to focus on three aspects of Pan Latinidad that are seen in Ugly Betty. The first is ambiguity, right? Ugly Betty was written for ABC, and apparently there was a lot of pushback on episode content. Uh, this was more so with the trans storyline, but also some of the Latinx elements. They wanted to focus more on the whole fish-out-of-water aspect of Betty's story than on her cultural identity. Betty is Mexican-American, but that's really easy to forget sometimes, with the exception of the Guadalajara poncho that she wears in the first episode and the two-episode arc in season one where they go and visit Mexico. Like, There's really little focus on her Mexican identity. As Molina Guzman explains, while the Betty character clearly must negotiate the demands of her white workplace with the demands of her Latina-Latino family, her ethnic-specific Mexican identity is rarely the focus of the storylines. Indeed, it is most of her pan-ethnic, albeit campy, performance of beauty and class that is the main source of humor and conflict. Betty's depiction is more informed by deracialized liberalism and the demands of globalization than it is concerned with ethnic authenticity, right? Betty's Latina, sure. But what kind of Latina seems to be less important to her story in this case? 
The next thing I would talk about is assimilation, right? Well, there are moments that highlight Betty's Mexican culture, for the most part, she's depicted as another young woman trying to move up in the world. She might not meet the physical beauty standards for the industry in which she works, but with hard work and determination, right? We love that. Bootstrap <laughs> she, mentality. <laughs> bootstrap mentality. Always there. <laughs> you know, but but with we're told that like with this mentality, she's sure to be able to work her way up in the world. Betty is a second-generation, cis, straight, fair-skinned Mexican woman. She fits the socially acceptable definition of the culturally assimilated ethnic woman, at least by U.S. television standards. Molina Guzman tells us that as a career-oriented second-generation college graduate, and she's a graduate of Queens College, so that's cool. Yay, public school. <laughs> Shout out to Queens College. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would have been a CUNY, uh, yeah, yeah, or CUNY uh, fellows. <laughs> exactly, yeah. No, but it's nice to see that she did go to a public local university from her borough as opposed to like, oh, she went to NYU or she went to Columbia. Not that there's anything wrong with those institutions, but it it does emphasize her working class background. Betty is more defined by her assimilated behavior, though, right? In particular, her inability to speak Spanish and her lack of interest in Spanish language, music, and television. That's the, the rest of Molina Guzman's quote. I argue, though, that this was conscious and deliberate choice to make her more appealing to white audiences. It also, like, fits within, like, uh, constructions of Latinidad that are very, like, whitewashed and about, like, uh, assimilation, right? And it's about erasure, er mm -hmm. erasing the, the particular or distinct uh, national traits, yeah, of, mm -hmm. of, of the person. Yeah, and that's also something that we see a lot in telenovelas, even from Latin American countries, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. And the last thing I want to mention in terms of these, um, this pan-Latinidad aspect is the so-called American dream. If it's not about culture and ethnicity, what is it about? Well, the American dream. As Molina Guzman explains, the show is about more than a Latina or a Mexican woman from Queens trying to fit into white corporate culture. It is about the trope of the American dream. And like with quotes, <laughs> yeah. yes, we yes. always should like uh, say <laughs> with quotes. And when we talked about the American dream, yeah, yeah. no, good it's point. Always, good point. To, it's always good to like be critical about that term, not yes. to accept that as if. <laughs> <laughs> and if any of my students are listening, they can they can attest to the fact that I am always using air quotes for mm. concepts like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. We root for Betty because she believes she's doing the right thing. And for the most part, her choice to do this right thing leads to success, uh, albeit moderate success, right? There's just enough success to want you wanting more. Race, ethnicity, or even culture are not the motivation be behind the main storylines. It is this, again, American dream. And I, <laughs> quote, <laughs> you, can, you can hear those quotes, right? <laughs> Work hard and you'll achieve personal, professional, and economic success, regardless of class or background. And that but, regardless <laughs> is important. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but we know, we know that this is not the full truth, though. While not every story needs to be or should be focused on race, ethnicity, and or culture, it is important to acknowledge them when considering individual successes or failures within the world, especially the corporate world, right? You're talking about... Her workplace, I mean, you've got Vanessa Williams' character, who is a black woman, but again, as I mentioned, very light-skinned black woman. 
almost everyone else in the office is white. So for Betty to come in and be a part of that environment, like it, she comes with something different. And we have to acknowledge that. We can't just erase it. Now, on the upside, it's not all negative, right? Like, well, I don't think the show aged well. And I, it did do some important things for Latinx representation on television. The first one, Latinx creators. One of the key producers for the show was Mexican-American Salma Hayek, who also had a recurring role in the first season. And the showrunner was the late Silvio Horta, a gay Cuban-American who was particularly interested in the series because his mother had enjoyed the original telenovela. The original pilot for the first attempt at this adaptation, Betty the Ugly, <laughs> it just does not sound right in English <laughs> to put it in that order, but that original pilot had no Latinx creatives on it. So with Orta and Ayak on board, they fought to keep the story focused on Betty as a Latina. Like they wanted to tell an immigrant story. As researcher Mary Beltran states, Latinas or Latinos telling their own stories on television matters above all else. As these narratives began to appear on broadcast and cable networks, they provided validation and inspiration for countless viewers. And, and I think that the last thing I want to say is that it was really an important role for America Ferrer as well. She had done Real Women Have Curves, which had been successful. Fantastic film. <laughs> yeah, and had been successful in its niche. It mm -hmm. wasn't a mainstream. Yeah, it was an independent film, but a very important one, also part of the uh, Latinx film canon right now. Absolutely, absolutely. And she had also been in Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, which was a kind of pop culture movie at that time. But this was her first starring role in a television series, and it was the first time a Latina lead character appeared on network television. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 2000, what did I say, 2006? So, yeah, you know, it was yeah. that long, 21st yeah. century. Today I'm, I'm going to be talking, as I was mentioning before, about the film Raising Victor Vargas. So as a way to examine the film today, I propose this question. How does Raising Victor Vargas explore the tensions and disconnections between self-image and reality, patriarchal gender roles, and intimacy? To engage with these questions, I will refer to the essay Do It For All Your Pubic Hairs, Latino Boys, Masculinity, and Puberty, as a way to unpack raising Victor Vargas and its masculine characters. I will be referring to some of the main arguments raised by its author, Richard Mora, and offering examples from the film. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, throughout the film, Victor, who is performed by Victor Rasuk, struggles with his own sense of masculinity as he tries to be seen as a tough and masculine individual. The film starts with Victor showing his muscles to a neighborhood lover, setting the tone and concerns of the film. <laughs> I can just imagine that. Like, just picture it now. <laughs> it's a great first uh, scene. <laughs> At the same time, we see how he also grapples with his insecurities and his need to embrace his vulnerabilities. He's shown trying to assert his dominance over his siblings and other boys in the neighborhood, but also dealing with the fact that he's still an immature teenager under the guidance of his elder, La Abuela, an extremely funny Altagracia Guzman. She is fantastic in yeah. the film. In his ethnographic study, sociologist Richard Mora argues that the Dominican and Puerto Rican boys he study embody heteronormative masculinity as a reflection of their social worlds. These male teens claim male supremacy and belonging by acting their maleness, la hombría en español. 
Mora says that boys did not experience puberty on their own, but rather with their homosocial group, something that is represented in Raising Victor Vargas from the very first scene. Especially in the relationship between Victor, his younger brother Nino, played by Victor's real brother Silvestre Razuk, and his panita Harold, played by Kevin Rivera. With one, he assumes the role of a papi chulo mentor, while with the other, Victor is always trying to prove his maleness. So he's kind of having to take on multiple masculine roles simultaneously. Yeah. Mora suggests that male adolescence is a social process as much as a biological transformation. A social process means that they are interactions and a collective embodiment. You become yourself by feeding into the group's norm. To understand these group's embodiments, Mora says that we need to contextualize it through constructions of class, race, and nationality. For instance, Mora argues that Dominicans and Puerto Ricans residing in low-income neighborhoods such as the old-school Loisai that we see in Racing Victor Vargas constructed their masculine identities by reproducing dominant gender expectation in their barrios, in the media, and in the norms of the countries of origin. Victor, for example, is very conscious of belonging to a lineage of prideful, promiscuous machos that goes back to his grandfather in the Dominican Republic. I will say one thing that's really stood out to me there is you talking about, like, we need to contextualize it through constructions of race, class, and nationality. It's never one thing. And I think we really need to emphasize these intersections of these elements. And it goes back to what I was saying about, like, that erasure in something like Ugly Betty, where you don't get the same nuance in the character that you would get here when you're considering all of these elements. Yeah, and, the, and uh, within the film, it's very important also that contextualization, that cultural contextualization, and there's like uh, 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 scenes in which the Dominican Republic and the environment in, uh, in the Dominican Republic are like highlighted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mora presents the idea that groups of male friends police each other regarding their gender performance. Boys must be vigilant regarding this gender expectation and thus should put an appropriate masculine performance in front of their friends and family. <laughs> As someone who grew up with a house full of sisters, I just like don't, you know, it's very interesting to to learn about this. And it makes sense, but it's just not something I ever experienced. That like, definitely resonates with me. Uh, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and I went to public school in Puerto Rico, and I remember public school being that place where, like, boys were policing each other mm -hmm. regarding their gender performance, right? Yeah. So it definitely, like, feels, like, very familiar to me. Yeah. yeah. The dynamics, the social dynamics. As boys want height and musculatura, they might display their bodies as proof that they're no longer kids. Victor and Nino, for instance, are constantly shirtless throughout the film as they fit well within the sociocultural ideal male physique, as Mora, uh, as Mora calls it, highly valued in their Dominican and Puerto Rican barrio. Mm -hmm. But the ideal masculinity might look different depending on the setting. For example, Victor and his brother are expected to perform traditional Catholic male respectability at home. In this case, La Abuela sees Nino, the younger brother, as the ideal male because, contrary to his siblings, he's respectful, he uses proper language, goes constantly to church, and entertains the family by playing European classical music on the piano. 
we see how Nino falls from the pedestal that the abuela put him on once he starts to explore his sexuality through masturbation and searching for tips on flirting with girls from Victor. I think that's really interesting. I'm I'm reading a book now actually um, about a couple of Pakistani main characters and their brothers. And one thing I noticed in that book is that it's the older brother who sort of is on that pedestal throughout a big portion of the book. And the younger one is kind of rebellious and does things contrary to it. Whereas here you're seeing it with the younger sibling is sort of like the baby of the family, the protected, the yeah. the the ideal hope, or the last hope maybe. <laughs> yeah. And, and and we see also like also like how uh within the family, right, the ideas of masculinity or or how a male should behave could be different than what we see on the street. Something that I'm gonna talk more mm -hmm. about right now. However, right, on the streets, the expectations are different. These are not the expectations of La Abuela. Yeah, as Mora analyzes outside, the boys' main ideas of masculinity dictate that they had to learn to flirt, as Nino recognizes, to engage in sexual relationships. Mora explains that the most common form of flirting involves piropos, or amorous compliments, often undesired by the females to whom they are directed. Ah, as a woman, that is so frustrating. Like, I understand that is performing masculinity, right? But, like, as the woman who would be on the street receiving these piropos, it's just so frustrating. <laughs> and it is uh, frustrating for the female characters in the film, yeah? At an early point in the film, Victor has to prove that he's a desirable man that can get any girl he wants. Hence, at a swimming pool, he creates a whole performance with Harold as his witness to get the attention of the girl he calls Juicy Judy, played oh. by Judy Martin. Love a it. young lady that all the males of the neighborhood are after. Even though Judy and her best friend Melanie, played by Melanie Diaz, see through its ridiculousness, Victor and Harold's performance break the ice with the girls, allowing for increasingly more authentic interactions. Okay, just side note. But unrelated to your main argument, I love how all the characters are named after the actors who are performing. Them. And that is very important. Yeah, I, I think that is something that we can talk more about because uh, the director wanted to have that authenticity. And that's why he kept the, the actual names of the actors. The actors were pretty much playing versions of themselves. Right. I, and I love that. I mean, I'm, I'm currently working on research that involves this idea of color conscious casting and casting people who can or developing the characters around who is cast in that role instead of just sort of generalizing them. And that sounds like what's happening here. Yeah, it would be like also like uh, I will add also ethnic conscious ca uh, casting. Yes. Yeah. Mora proposes that in the flirtatious exchanges, the boys and girls often incorporated sexual innuendos that call attention to their own, to their own developed bodies and those they desire. These interactions allowed the boys and girls to express their physical attraction to one another and explore the personal and physical boundaries of potential boyfriends and girlfriends. This is at the center of Racing Victor Vargas. It becomes a film that traces how the two pairs of potential lovers deal with personal and physical boundaries, and importantly, with consent. Mm. Another aspect that Mora explains in his articles is that collective notions of beauty constrain young men. Victor can give public piropos and hang out with Judy as she fits within the normalized notions of whitewashed beauty. 
She's tall and thin with straight hair and light skin. However, he must hide and even cancel his relationship with Donna, an Afro-Latina whom most people reject because of fat phobia, anti-blackness, and other neighborhood codes. The film briefly shows that Victor and Donna had a good loving relationship, but even the movie treats her as a joke. She disappears as a character once Victor moves on, moves on to get Judy. She only rips and shame for Victor. The other characters, including Judy and Victor's sister Vicky, refer to her to put him down and to call his macho bluff. Indirectly, they also reestablish traditional gender and race norms in the yikes. neighborhood. I mean, I, it's, it's really yikes, but I think... I but think it's very real. It's too. very real, right. And it sounds like the way it's portrayed here it is so much more realistic than, again, in, say, like a telenovela Bet Ugly Betty type where they're hyper-exaggerating it for the sake of the joke. This is just the realities of those extremes. And it's the reality of the neighborhood to this day, right? And it is presented in a critical way. The film also explores feminist visions in relation to the overwhelming machismo of the Loisaida community. Judy and Melanie are constantly uncomfortable with the cat calling, as you were saying, and general masculinist pressures on them. Early on, they decide that they got each other and don't need the attention, validation, or protection of the machos in the neighborhood. Yes. <laughs> Together, they create strategies to avoid them and develop a detached, cynical, and uncompromising attitude toward them. That's a survival tactic, though. I mean... Uh, and know. it is presented like that in the mm -hmm. film. Yeah. Although one could read the film's plot as the breaking of different feminist protective walls, yeah, I will argue that Melanie and then Judy, and even Victor's preteen sister, Vicky, played by Cristal Rodriguez, discovers that they want and have a right to intimacy. But overall, all the characters discover that regarding intimate in uh, relationship, the most important element is consent, especially from a female perspective. I appreciate that. <laughs> In the film, consent is given what the stereotypical performances of masculinity are dismantled and the young men show consistency and the vulnerable self without imposing themselves. First Melanie and then Judy affirm their desires accepting Harold and Victor, but on their own terms. Vicky also accepts the friendship of a boy that pursues her, Carlos, once she establishes her boundaries with him. Arguably, La Abuela sees the importance of letting go of her moralist grips, unrealistic expectations, and the need to communicate better her necessities around the house. Overall, Racing Victor Vargas presents a nuanced and complex portrayal of masculinity, showing how cultural, familiar, and personal influences shape it. Masculinity ends up being performed by Victor in the context of his relationship with the woman in his life, his grandma, his sister, and Judy. As he navigates his feelings toward his family, friends, and Judy, he modifies his performance of masculinity, questioning common stereotypes and learning what a fluid, respectful, and caring masculinity entails. All right, so I think now's a good time for us to kind of try and tie these together because on first glance, they seem extremely different from one another, but I think there's there's some connectivity. Yeah, maybe we can uh, start by asking what do you think about the portrayal of the New York City neighborhood that are represented in, 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 in your show and in my film, right? Yeah. We can talk about that representation, especially because this season is about uh, New York City as a Latinx uh, space. Yeah, right? I think that, that's probably key. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Betty is from Queens, right? And specifically Jackson Heights. 
And um, I was looking up the recent statistics on the neighborhood, and Jackson Heights is 57% Hispanic Latino, according to the census. Very big percentage. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. the majority mm-hmm. of, the, of that neighborhood. And while there's a good-sized Mexican population there, there are higher populations of Ecuadorians, Colombians, and um, various Central American countries. Ferreira is Honduran-American. So, like, why not make Betty's family Honduran? If there's a lot of Central Americans there. (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously, this is probably to appeal to a broader audience. Again, read white (laughs) um, in the footnotes there. Because there's this whole idea of like, oh, if someone is Latino, that just means they're Mexican, right? Which obviously we all know is not the truth. But that does seem to be, again, playing into stereotypes, the default. When New York Mexicans are portrayed in film and television, though, they're often from neighborhoods like Harlem or um, boroughs like the Bronx and Brooklyn. And you mentioned this earlier in the episode when we talk about seeing these portrayals, but they're rarely shown as being from Queens. And I just said 57 (laughs) percent. So making Betty and her family from Jackson Heights, I think, helps broaden that range in our understanding of what are Latino communities. Yeah, Queens is not, it's usually erased, yeah, from conversations about Latino New York City, Latinx New York City. Yeah, so it was, it was nice to see that, that representation sort of like expanding where, where Latinos live. Well, in terms of uh, raising Victor Vargas, uh, as I uh, mentioned, it is based in the Lower East Side, Lower East Side. Uh, but what this film accomplished at the time was remarkable considering what this neighborhood has seen in terms of gentrification, especially mm. in the 21st century. Not that it's starting in the 21st century, but especially it has been like really intense during we'll, this we'll century. Probably talk, we'll probably talk about that a little bit more um, in our community episode this season. Mm-hmm. This film, I feel like I will argue that it presents filmmakers shooting in New York City with a model to follow. Yeah, and let me explain that. The director, Peter Solid, a white New Yorker, and his co-writer, Eva Vives, a Spaniard, initially had a young love story they wanted to make with non-professional actors in the neighborhood. They moved, uh, uh, at the time, they were like living in the Lower Side, uh, but they weren't born in the neighborhood. They were just like living there at the Got time. It. In an interview with the Sundance Lab, Solid recounts that they did an open casting in Lois Side, and all the people who came were Dominican and Puerto Ricans. Instead of rejecting them and forcing whitewashed characters and storylines, as is usually the case in the film industry, they decide to rewrite the initial short film with the actors, keeping the original idea of first love but contextualizing the film to the actors' real-life circumstances and their Afro-Caribbean Latinx neighborhood. When that's the key. short that's yeah. that's I mean that's that's the true definition of, of like creating around like authentically, creating authentically. When the short films succeed, they get the same cast and approach to filming once they decide to expand their project into a future film. In many ways, the film is a docufiction since they shot in the actors' apartments and in some real locations outside. The characters use their own clothing in all the scenes and the dialogue came directly from them. By embracing the actors' authentic identities and dialogue, the film thus created an unembodied linguistic portrait of a Boricua and Dominican neighborhood in New York City at the turn of the 21st century. Again, like, these authentic portrayals of them, even in Ugly Betty, where it's very minimal, like, they don't spend, most of the Jackson Heights scenes are in the house, you still 
they name it, right? It's not just, oh, she lives somewhere in Queens. She lives in Jackson Heights and this is her neighborhood. And and sort of bringing that attention uh, to these neighborhoods is really giving these neighborhoods personality with the people like they're they're almost uh characters themselves but instead i will say like instead of like giving personality the 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 neighborhoods already have their personality so it's about like embracing it embracing it emphasizing it yeah Mm -hmm. acknowledging it at the very listening to it and i feel like this uh film also is about listening to how the people speak yeah Mm -hmm. in the in the neighborhood what the way they express themselves and accept it as part of what a film in the lower side should look like and, and and should sound like. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Well, you know, we talk about the neighborhood at, in general, but what about like the specific use of outdoor spaces? Sure. Uh, so in, in terms of outdoor uh, spacing, it's very interesting what happens in Racing Victor Vargas because the film ties gender performance and outdoor spaces. Yeah, we see that the right to the street is only given to cis heterosexual males. As such, Victor moves freely around the neighborhood. He can and is expected to be everywhere. In comparison, Judy cannot move around. She isn't able to walk without being harassed by cat callers young and old. She needs to be with a man by her side to be on the streets. She only finds refuge in a rooftop or a community garden when outside. Her younger brother, Carlos, on the contrary, can hang around the street easily. In Victor's household, there's a double standard too, as he has full mobility while Vicky needs to remain at home at all times. Interestingly, Nino doesn't go out either, perhaps because he's not sexually active yet. Mm. More repressed than Victor, he goes outside only to visit the local Catholic church. The film doesn't try to give a full overview of the neighborhood as the camera remains limited by the character's social restrictions. And you you also said that uh, Nino eventually does sort of come into his sexuality and like, I assume at that point he does go out onto the streets more. But that's also when he falls from his abuela's pedestal there, right? Exactly. And we see like, uh, actually Nino Nino never gets out of the apartment except to go to the uh, Catholic church. But we see, right, how the space in the apartment uh, start to get like really busy and really tense because of his awakening. Ah, okay. His sexual awakening. So the, the, the space in the apartment gets very tense. It seems fights, smaller. Yeah, it seems smaller. Although it is a small apartment <laughs> <laughs> by itself, but it gets smaller because of how La Abuela get tense around uh, the increasing sexual needs of, of, of Los Nietos y Nietas. Mm-hmm. Well, with Ugly Betty, not a lot of the show takes place outdoors. Um, again, this is probably... in part because at least in the first season um, that it was filmed primarily in Los Angeles. But uh, beyond Jackson Heights, most outdoor New York scenes take place on Madison Avenue. It's really funny because you're like watching and I'm like, I walk by that playground in Madison Square Park (laughs) like every day I come here. But this fits with the portrayal of New York as a setting for achieving this quote unquote American dream, right? And it also highlights the socioeconomic differences between Betty's neighborhood in Queens and corporate New York City. Queens is often associated with working class, albeit white, ethnic immigrants in television. So the Queens setting, even using the Mexican cultural context, appeals to people's pre-established knowledge of that area of New York. It's like when you think about TV shows set in Queens, they're always like that working class family. 
Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the huge contrast with a Madison Avenue, like the fashion industry, this, that, and the other thing. And so, again, while not a lot of the scenes take place outdoors, the contrast that we see between the big buildings and then the, the like, very homey houses of, of Jackson Heights is, uh, they work in contrast to one another. Yeah, so Queens is represented as a family space, right, versus uh, uh, Manhattan that is presented as more of a, a corporate corporate site that allows uh, the achievement of the uh, so-called American dream, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so we'll wrap up with a couple of recommendations. And I, this one was tough for me because I feel like we've mentioned the few New York Latinx television shows in our previous episodes. You know, we covered Pose in season two. And Rojo, I think you recommended The Get Down in that same episode as, mm-hmm. as another option. So I guess I'm going to choose a show that, while it has more of a multicultural ensemble cast, does have two Latinas in that central cast. And I don't usually recommend cop shows. Uh, you know, not not a big fan of the copaganda. <laughs> but I do think I'm going to go with Brooklyn Nine-Nine here. And a big part of this is because I, I once listened to a podcast interview with the actress Stephanie Beatrice, who plays Rosa Diaz on the show. And in this podcast, she was discussing how she didn't think that they would hire her for the role because they, these are her words, already had a Latina. Because they had cast Melissa Fumero, who played Amy Santiago in the show. And so, like, Stephanie Beatrice was like, well, okay, I know how things work. And, and once they had one, they would, that was enough Latina representation for them or whatever. It was like checking off a little box, right? Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the case. And so I think they perfectly cast her in that role. I actually think that that role may have been initially intended for a male actor. I'm not sure, but they just... They like the way that she performed enough. It wasn't about the fact that that she was or wasn't Latina. However, for both of these characters, they're Latinidad. They're like, um, I don't think we ever know what Rosa's background is, but Amy is from a Cuban-American family. And we do see that brought up uh, multiple times throughout the show. And a spoiler for the last season, but like it finished airing in 2021. So in that season... Rosa left the NYPD to become a private investigator. She was actually disillusioned with the police force after the death of George Floyd and the subsequent Black Lives Matter protest. And the character herself refused to be a part of that institution any longer and separated. And and I'm just, I appreciate that they addressed like, that. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, well. yeah it was, it was yeah. a it was a big deal. And And what was interesting is Amy didn't leave, but her approach was the like, can I change it from the inside? And so to have the fact that they... they took, There's the debate, right? Yeah. And there's like a, yeah, there's a discussion about it. But the fact that they even opened it up for that discussion, I think, was yeah. key. Also, side Especially note, from a cop show, right? Yeah. Although, it's a, of course, it's comedy and that allows for... Uh, actually, comedy always has a critical component. So of course. It, it, of of course, course, like allows for that, but... Uh, yeah, but uh, I definitely appreciate that as yeah. well. And um, bonus, the precinct, the outdoor footage that they use is the precinct for my neighborhood in Brooklyn. 
Today I want to recommend a documentary, La Madrina, The Savage Life of Lorraine Padilla by the writer-filmmaker Raquel Cepeda. This is a non-fiction film and it's about the life of a beloved South Bronx matriarch, una matriarca, and former first lady of the Savage Skulls gang. The documentary touches upon her reflections on gang social structures and the famous fires of the 1970s. Yeah, she contextualizes the political neglect that led to the destruction. And after this tumultuous decade, she remained a community leader and helped rebuild the devastated borough from the 1980s onwards to this day. She still uh, lives in the Bronx yeah, and is very active mm -hmm. in the community. When one foot in the outlawed life and the other as an activist and Afro-Caribbean spiritual advisor, Lauren Padilla allowed us to look at the complexity of multiple worlds overlapping in the South Bronx and how they inform the present of the predominantly Latinx borough. And um, I think Raquel Cepeda, as the writer-filmmaker for that, is a great fit given her own background and involvement in yeah. this culture and these movements in these yeah. decades. Yeah, Raquel Cepeda is a Dominican, right, of Dominican mm -hmm. descent and uh, a, a proud Afro-Latina who has like always like uh, written about Afro-Dominican, yeah. uh, Afro-Puerto Rican, Afro-Latinx culture in New York. I definitely encourage people to check out her memoir, Bird of Paradise, if you, if you have a chance. It's kind of like part memoir, but also part investigation. Yeah. This is uh, Raquel Cepeda's second documentary. The first one is also like really good. Some girls, I think like also I, I, I mentioned it before, checked out her work in general, in film, in, in, in literature, right, in journalism. Uh, she's a, a great figure to follow, right, in terms of discussing yeah, contemporary Latinx issues. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us for the first episode of our season. Let us know what you thought of our coverage of these two works. We'd love to hear from you. And remember that you can always reach out to us on social media or by email. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at LatinXVisions. Our email address is LatinXVisions at gmail.com. And we love to include your thoughts in a future episode. So... Write to us. <laughs> Let us <laughs> Talk know. to us. <laughs> Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe. And if you have a moment, leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify. All right. Chequeamos. Estamos a la escucha. Dale. Until next time. Bye.